Well, hello. It's great to see you. Thanks again for being here. Uh, thanks for being part of everything that God's doing here at Grace. I've been gone the last couple of Sundays. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we, I was in Colorado on vacation. And then last weekend, I was in New York City. Our, a group of churches that we connect with, our fellowship, uh, has a conference every year. And it's at different places. This year, it was in New York City. And, and I was one of the speakers there, which that was a little different, so I had a great time though, And but I got to tell you, it's great to be home. Whenever I'm gone, I miss this place. I don't know if that happens to you, but uh, that's how it is for me, and again, thanks for being here. How, how many of you have noticed uh, this weekend that uh, the, the full moon, I mean, yeah, it, it's glorious, isn't it? I, Friday night, I was coming home, and uh, there's the moon, I mean, just bigger than life, and and driving there, I got home, and then I wasn't home very long, and then Pam says, have you seen the moon? There's something about the beauty of God's creation that makes us want to share it with other people. It's interesting that way. I, when I was out in Colorado, I felt the same way. Uh, on one of the days I was there, I went to a, a little town called Westcliff that's surrounded by mountains, and I went to a rodeo there in Westcliff, just having a great time, just stuff I like to do. And then I, as I was just appreciating the beauty all around me, I actually took a shot. I tweeted it out. Of course, the pictures never do justice. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's a panoramic thing. You're just getting a little slice. And, uh, and so I did that and just appreciating everything. But while I did that, while I was sitting there enjoying all the surroundings and God's creation, I was eating a chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream cone. And although I wanted to share God's beauty everywhere, I didn't want to share that with anybody. I mean, I wanted that all for myself right down to the last bite. It's interesting that beauty is something that we always want to share. It's one of the only things we always want to share and never want to hoard. And it's kind of like for God's creation, that kind of beauty, when we see it and when we share it, it's kind of like it doubles our joy, if, if joy's the right word for when, you know what I mean, when God, uh, when you see something God created and it, it strikes your soul like a tuning fork. I mean, you know, bam. Well, looking at the moon, bigger than life. And of course, when we think about it, we realize it's not really the moon shining, right? It's the moon reflecting the light of the sun. That's kind of the same with God's basic message to us, what we call the gospel, the good news. It's really all about the, the sun. Everything reflects the sun. The sun is the issue. We're in a series called What's the Difference? And what we're talking about is the differences between other religions and biblical Christianity. And Kent, uh, Tim kicked it off last week. And we talked about Jehovah Witnesses. And then today, I'm talking about Mormonism, or specifically what they would say is the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, or LDS. And we're going to look at that. And basically, when we answer what's the difference, there's a reason that we, we do this. Because God tells us that we are supposed to be prepared to give an answer for anyone who asks about the hope that's in us. That's in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense 
to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence or respect. In other words, you've got to have a good attitude, but you need to be prepared to answer people. Now, how many of you have ever had uh, a Mormon missionary show up at your door? Usually they come in pairs, young men dressed with white shirts and usually have little tags saying Elder Bob or, or whatever. And that ever happened to anybody? That's pretty common. And, of course, we run into Mormons in other places. Well, we want to have an answer for them. So you have to know a little bit about Mormonism to get that. The first thing you need to know is now, in the last 20 years, Mormons increasingly describe themselves as Christians. It used to be that they said they weren't Christian, and they'd make a point of that. But now they're describing themselves as Christians, and they're doing that to make their message a little more palatable to the American public. So what about it? What's the difference? Is it Christian? Is it the same? Well, I mean, I'm, I want to teach you a little bit about Mormonism this morning so you understand. First of all, there's a different authority. It's all a different foundation. It's all based on a different basis. There's a different theology, and there's a different gospel in Mormonism. It really denies the tenets of biblical Christianity, even though they use the term. So, a different authority. Well, the authority of the Mormon church starts with Joseph Smith, who said he had a revelation back in about 1820. And when you get into his story, there's a lot there, and a lot of it's documented. And the stuff I'm going to show you by way of video to kind of pack it in, um, it, it's not really denied by the Mormon church. They, they have, you know, they accept this stuff. But here's a little introduction to Mormonism. Joseph Smith Jr. was raised in a time, place, and family where disillusionment with established religion was widespread and homegrown religious offshoots were in style. Dozens of groups can trace their origins back to this movement, including Mormonism. Smith was well known as a glass looker, someone who claimed to be able to find buried gold using his hat and seer stone. Court charges still exist from his swindled customers. But Smith also joined in the new religion craze, claiming God told him that all the other ones were abominable and corrupt. His new church was allegedly restored original Christianity, but turned out to be very novel. His first step was to find a buried gold book and translated it with the help of his hat and seer stone. He wasn't allowed to show these gold plates around, but he got three friends to swear that they had seen them in a vision. The wife of one witness, Martin Harris, wanted to see if Smith's story was verifiable, so she made 116 pages of his manuscript disappear. Smith was unable to reproduce them from his source, but claimed it was because God wouldn't let him. Later, Smith was twice demonstrated a fraud when he claimed to translate an Egyptian papyrus and a set of hoax plates, both of which still exist and do not say what he claimed they did. Finally, the Book of Mormon was finished, telling the tale of a vast civilization of ancient Jews who lived in South America, for which we now know there is not a single shred of evidence. It looks even less authentic and more like he wrote it, as it's filled with anachronisms, mentioning animals, plants, technology, language, and quoting books that didn't exist in that time or place and several major plot points appear to have been lifted from modern books that Smith plausibly had access to. When it came time to publish, Smith didn't have the money, so he claimed God told him Martin Harris was to pay for it, or else be destroyed. The new Mormon church moved to Ohio and started a system where everyone's land and money was owned by the church. Smith also opened an illegal bank and started printing his own money. 
When this scam came crashing down, Smith was arrested, but he posted bail and skipped town on his creditors. He also prophesied that the Mormons would take over Jackson County, Missouri, to await the doomsday of all non-Mormons. The Missouri locals did not appreciate the incursion of this apocalyptic voting block, and the Mormons were forced back out. So Smith, on God's command, sent an army to take Jackson County, which never made it. But the violence continued to escalate, and a Mormon army actually attacked a state militia. The conflict finally ended with Smith being arrested for murder and treason, but he bribed his way out of jail and met up with the Mormons who had moved into Illinois. Smith ran Nauvoo like a police state and advanced from general of his own army to presidential candidate, and finally being proclaimed king by his secret council of 50. He was also practicing polygamy, taking perhaps as many as 40 wives, including married women, mother-daughter sets, sisters, and girls as young as 14. He even received revelations from God telling women that they would be damned if they didn't marry him, and that his first wife would be destroyed if she didn't accept it. But publicly, he denied and condemned polygamy his entire life. When a newspaper threatened to print proof of his lascivious lifestyle, he sent his army and destroyed it, and was arrested again. A mob attacked his jail cell, and Smith, who was armed, went down in a gunfight. Mormonism stands or falls on the reliability of Joseph Smith's word. So, was he a godly prophet of a great and marvelous work, who in his own words had more to boast about than Jesus? or an egomaniacal manipulative con man who spotted opportunity in the religious climate of the day. The contenders to take over the church experienced a rash of revelations, angel visitations, more buried scripture, and even a mysterious murder. But Brigham Young won the biggest slice of the congregation. An arrest warrant for counterfeiting hastened Young to relocate the Mormons to what at the time was Mexico, where Mormon violence and dictatorial government continued for years. Throughout the 20th century, Mormonism shifted to a more mainstream image with advertising and repealing its polygamy and whites-only priesthood policy. It became a multi-billion dollar corporation and the second largest group that sprouted from that rural 19th century religious zeitgeist. Flesh this out more at ldsvideo.org. That encapsulates a lot of that uh, fairly um, time productively, if you will. So it all just comes together that way. We look at the founder, Joseph Smith. That's, that's really where the authority starts. And then it's their writings. And they have three writings, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrines and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. And then they had also say uh, the King James Version of the Bible as it's, as it's correctly translated. Every false religion will come up with another competing book other than the Bible. And a lot of times they don't discount the Bible. They'll, they'll accept the Bible, but they'll just say that this other writing supersedes the Bible because the Bible is kind of hard to ignore. Or they'll say that the Bible everybody else has has been corrupted and only they have the true Bible. That's what these false religions do. So they, have, they believe in the King James Version of the Bible as correctly translated, but because the King James Version is a translation. You can ask, well, where is it not translated? They don't really tell you that. They just say that to leave that open, that they can challenge anything that's in there. And so it's really non-binding uh, to them anyway. And then they have the Book of Mormon, which is the main foundational piece, more important than the Bible, that was written by Joseph Smith. And there's a whole story behind that. There's so many things 
in, in this, the founding and the early days of this religion, and it continues to today, it's just hard to pick uh, what bizarre story to tell next. But, but one more time, I want to use a video to kind of give you uh, a grounding of, of what the Book of Mormon is all about and maybe where it came from in the history uh, of its source in America. Where did Mormonism come from? Is it based on literal events, or did Joseph Smith draw inspiration from somewhere else? Smith's first vision was first recorded in 1832, but others in the area had published similar visions years before Smith did. They were stirred by a passage of scripture, went into the woods in the morning, knelt to pray but couldn't speak, felt that others were around, seized by a power, then despair, then weakness, felt near to death, saw some remarkable light, like above the brightness of the sun, saw God and Jesus in bodily form with indescribable glory, told all churches were corrupt, more specifically that their professors were corrupt, and there was more information that couldn't be written. Of these visionaries, one was a well-known preacher who visited Smith's community, one met with Smith's family, and one had his vision published in the Smith's local newspaper, all before Joseph recorded his vision. Smith also claimed that he had received the Golden Plates, a record of the ancient Nephite people, from the angel Moroni in 1827. That same year, an English translation of a story called The Golden Pot was published, about a man who received a record of the ancient Atlantean people from the spirit Lindhorst. The author had even been promoted in Smith's local newspaper. The story's similarities include, both men are meditating when they see a great light, get shocked, and meet a messenger in a vision. Both have three visions in one evening. Both are called to transcribe records from an old civilization and are promised a seer device. Both messengers are the descendants and archivists of their civilizations, are called Prince of the Spirits, and can appear in the form of an amphibian. Going to retrieve the records, both men encounter an evil power, are chastised for not being serious enough, and are told to wait one year to see if they will be allowed to receive them. Both visit vast chambers with treasures, breastplates, dazzling light from an unknown source, a library, and tripods with Egyptian artifacts. Both men are injured by evil spirits, pass their final test, and get access to their records on the fall equinox. The story content of the Book of Mormon, published in 1830, could easily have been inspired by a book called View of the Hebrews, first published in 1823 in Poultney, Vermont. Both books are about Hebrews leaving the Old World, sailing to the uninhabited Americas, and becoming the ancestors of the Native Americans. They split into two people groups, one barbarous and one civilized. There is a change from monarchy to republic. A Messiah figure visits. The Christian gospel is preached in the Americas. Whole chapters of the book of Isaiah are quoted. After long wars, the barbarous eventually destroy the civilized. But there is a lost book of God left buried in a hill. Oliver Cowdery, a witness to the Book of Mormon, was from Poultney, Vermont, and met Joseph just after the second printing of View of the Hebrews. Later, Smith even quoted and cited the book in an article. So all the necessary building blocks of Smith's new religion were close at hand, and even though he supplied plenty of his own details, it's fairly obvious that they're hung on the framework of these sources. So is it more likely that Smith's experiences were really genuine, or that they developed from his own absorbent imagination? So you have the Book of Mormon, which is their cornerstone. And I don't know if you caught all that, but he's saying that he's visited by an angel, angelic beings, it changes a little bit, Father and the Son sometimes. He's visited, and then they tell him they're going to give him this revelation. He's told to go dig up some plates, and the plates are from a prior civilization 
the Jewish people who came to the Americas while they were uninhabited by any Native Americans at the time, so they say, uh, landed in South America, although some Mormons now would say North America, had this vast civilization. That all happened about 600 B.C., before Christ. And then one of the people, one of the descendants, the last, you know, then they kind of split and it gets into racial stuff. The dark-skinned people were the bad guys and the light-skinned people were the good guys and all the light-skinned people were killed and the last guy buries these plates. And so then he's told to dig them up and retranslate them to the Book of Mormon. Nobody ever has seen the plates, even Mormons would admit this, that he never showed them to anybody, only Joseph Smith saw them. Other people only saw them in vision, not physically. Actually, when that even came out back during Joseph Smith's lifetime, several leaders of his church left because he had told other people had seen him, but then later it was, well, they saw him in a vision. And then not only that, but he said they were written in an ancient uh, Egyptian hieroglyphic that, that he knew how to read. People challenged him because he was a controversial figure of the time, and they actually proved in a court of law that he didn't know anything about ancient G Egyptian hieroglyphics and couldn't translate anything as part of what that was showing us. And then, uh, then he just responded that it was a different Egyptian that nobody had ever seen before. What that's doing in the Americas, who knows? But, you know, he just has this story of how he came up with the plates. But the way he translated them is very interesting, too. Mormon pictures always show him sitting at a table with these plates, these golden plates, and he's translating and somebody else is writing. But that's not really true according to their own history. Nobody else saw the plates. And that Mormons teach that the way he translated them was not by looking at the plates, which you wonder why he even needed the plates. The way he translated them is he had a seer stone that he would put in a hat and then he would put his face down in the hat and then he would uh, call out or verbalize the words that he saw and a person would, uh, a scribe would put them, write them down for him. That's the actual method that the Mormons say and Joseph Smith said that he used. But you never see that depicted because before that he was involved in using seer stones to find hidden treasure which people were swindled by, which we have court documents about that now. And even the Mormon church will admit that what they'll say is, well, back at that time that was culturally acceptable. You know, that's their answer to that. So you have the Book of Mormon, major problems... Uh, another unusual thing about the Book of Mormon is um, it has about 16 chapters of Isaiah inside the Book of Mormon that are quoted word for word from the 1611 King James Version of the Bible. What makes this so weird is if these tablets were buried in 600 or 400 B.C. and they were dug up, the English version of the Bible hadn't come out yet, the King James Version. And so why would, in the ancient Americas, would they be speaking in the King's English, which they didn't use in the 1800s, and they sure didn't use in the hundreds of years before Christ. You know, so all this stuff, it's just literally copied over, and it's, it's, it's really comical almost comical as you look at this, all the mistakes that were made, even a, a few places as he's copying the King James Isaiah, he makes some mistakes and then that makes the rest of the text not make any sense. 
it would be comical if it wasn't so tragic that millions of people believe that this is true. So that's a little bit about the Book of Mormon. And if you, and, and did you catch? Here's one of the best proofs against the Book of Mormon. The whole Book of Mormon rests on this story that ancient Hebrews came to the Americas before anybody else, and they had a vast, advanced civilization with cities, many cities, developed advanced cities, mountains, streams, all this stuff that's named in the Book of Mormon. None of those things have been found. There's not one shred of archaeological evidence supporting that. As a matter of fact, one of the leading Mormon archaeologists that was trying to find this stuff really quit being a Mormon because of the absence of archaeological evidence. He's like, this can't be true. There's no evidence of this in South America or North America anywhere. Contrast that with the Bible that even non-Bible-believing archaeologists use to find things in the Middle East, even where atheist archaeologists have even come to Christ because of their reliability of the Old and New Testament about people, places, and things. It's completely different. The Book of Mormon does not stack up to the Bible. The Book of Mormon claims all this stuff that is not true. Now, if you're ever, why are we talking about this? Because we have interaction with Mormons. If you're ever talking to a Mormon, sometimes I do. Uh, if they come to my house, I don't invite them in, but I'll step out on the porch and we'll have a conversation. Sometimes I could go for quite a long time. But when they don't get any traction with you, what they'll finally say, it's kind of a parting shot, and I, I think they're just playing the odds a little bit. When you're all said and done and know the, the Book of Mormon does not at all, the Book of Mormon does not hold up to the Bible. They make it look like it, but it's completely different. They'll finally say, well, here's what I want you to do. If you'll promise to do this, you know, and sometimes you just flip this around on them, but they'll say, what I want you to do is just pray about it. Pray about it in faith, in, even in faith in Christ, they might say, about the Book of Mormon, and see if God doesn't prompt you, give you a feeling that it's true. And I think at this point, they're just playing the odds. Okay, we, we lost this guy, but now I can leave with a parting shot. Maybe one in 10 people that they say that to, maybe they do pray the prayer and some fraction of those people that do kind of feel a, a prompting. Or if they promise, they pray the prayer and then maybe just a fraction of them feel, hey, I think I might've felt something. And then they reconsider the Book of Mormon. So it's just, uh, it's just a way for, for people to use maybe feelings, trying to, you know, point to feelings and have that somehow tr uh, trump God's truth. So that's the Book of Mormon. And, the, and then the other books he have is the, is the Doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. The Pearl of Great Price is just the story of his first vision. And although that has issues too, a doctrinal student, uh, a Mormon doctrinal student in Utah uh, found a, a different, in Joseph Smith's own handwriting, a different account of the first vision, caused a big old thing, and, and they admit that that's true, but it's not like what's recorded. It's just a mess. Um, he has, then the other book is Doctrine, Doctrines and Covenants, another book that Joseph Smith wrote. It, this gets so bizarre. He's writing in Doctrines of Covenants. Did you catch the polygamy stuff? 
Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. He didn't outwardly teach polygamy. The teaching of polygamy really came with Brigham Young. Although Joseph Smith practiced it, and everybody knew that in private and were practicing it, it was Brigham Young that really went public with that. But it's written into doctrines and covenant. As you can imagine, Joseph Smith's wife may not like this very much, right? I mean, he's writing that having more than one wife is a good thing. Well, he writes right into Doctrine of Covenants, which is like their Bible. He writes right in there and names his wife, Emma Smith. And he says that God commands that Emma Smith should be okay with this. And that if she ever leaves Joseph Smith, she'll be destroyed. You know, just like the guy who was supposed to finance the printing of the book. Hey, if you don't do that, you'll be destroyed. And just like that guy's wife, by the way, didn't believe all this. And she took 160 pages from the Book of Mormon to see if he could reproduce it, which put Joseph Smith in a bind. Because if he reproduced it and it didn't match, all of a sudden he would be shown to be a false prophet. So then he said, well, God won't reveal to me what that was. And then he said, and if he ever did, he told me that he, he changed the new story so it wouldn't be like the old story. So, you know, who ha- you know, it's just bizarre. But what's tragic is that people believe this. And so when you're interacting with somebody, that's what you're dealing with. A lot of times you'll notice that it's not just, uh, it's not just dealing with them about their authorities that are written They also have the prophets. For example, Brigham Young, the second leader of the Mormon church, he taught publicly polygamy so strongly that he said, without polygamy, you can't have Mormonism. And without the plurality of wives, it's going to be harder to become a god because they believe men can become gods. And, you know, to him, you had to have polygamy. And then that brings us to another authority. Their authority are not only written... But they're the prophets. The Mormon church has one living prophet all the time. And that prophet can supersede anything that's written in their theology. The KJV, as it's correctly translated, or the Book of Mormon, which is their number one book, or Doctrines and Covenants, or Pearl of Great Price, and then the Bible would be number four. But he can change any of that that he wants or say, no, that doesn't go anywhere. That's how they can say... Yes, polygamy, and then after pressure from the federal government, later say no polygamy, and kind of, and then although people kept doing it, they said no polygamy again, and then even after that, it was 40 years before the leaders, you know, even 40 years after that second one, the leaders still had plurality of wives, you know, just kind of a bizarre thing. I guess that's kind of a, maybe an easy sell, but um, hey, you want to, you want a new religion? Well, I got one. You can have as many wives as you want. You can become a god. And then, and then your job will be to have sex with all these wives and have spirit babies. You know, that's just kind of what Mormon doctrine teaches. A lot different than Christianity. We know as believers that God has given us the word of God. God breathed. And uh, that's what 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That inspired by God, literally in the Greek, God breathe, it means inspired by God. And uh, it's just the very words of God. And not only that, but Jude uh, 1.3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, 
It's talking about the gospel. I felt necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Here's Jude saying, look, the faith, the gospel, what we believe, it's been once for all handed out. It will not change. This is it. But not only does Mormonism have different authorities, it also has a different theology. They call themselves Christians now, and they'll make that case, but they do not believe in Christian principles or what the Bible's teaching. Um, Mormons believe that God was a mortal man who progressed to become a God. That's in the Doctrines and Covenants. They believe that men now can become gods. And they actually have a saying that kind of explains it. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. It's really the same sin that we saw in the garden. Where Eve was tempted to break the command of God. And and remember, what was she told? Hey, God doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the fruit of good and evil because... You'll become like God. You'll become like him. Same sin. And I guess, again, kind of easy sell. Hey, you want a new religion? Become a God. You can become a God in Mormonism and have all these wives. It's just just a bad deal. And then their theology about Jesus Christ. They'll say we're Christian. They even have, and they'll say, they'll point out, we have Jesus Christ in the name of our church. But they've changed who Jesus Christ is. They have a different Jesus. And that's kind of common with false religions. Jesus is hard to ignore, so a lot of them, they won't deny Jesus. They just make Jesus less than who he is. Here's what the Mormons say. Mormons deny the eternality of Jesus and believe that he was the first spirit child of God. They believe that he's the brother of of Lucifer, they were both spirit children, and that they believe that Jesus is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. They believe that Jesus became a man when God the Father came down, took on flesh, had a physical sexual relationship with Mary, and produced Jesus. That's why they don't believe in the virgin birth, as they believe Mary actually had a physical relationship with the Father. Um, They believe, you know, all these wrong things about Jesus. And when they talk about Jesus, when you're standing there talking to them, you're not talking about the same person. You know, you are. They just don't see Jesus the same way you do. Here's what Scripture teaches us about Jesus. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And this is Jesus, you'll find out in the chapter. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, this is Jesus as Creator, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is what we're taught, not only in John 1, but we see the same thing in Colossians 1.16. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is, again, 
Jesus wasn't created or made because of a fleshly union. Jesus is God, Scripture's telling us. And um, they don't believe the Jesus of the Bible. Different authority. What's the difference? Different authority, different theology, and a different gospel. Regarding salvation, when you talk to a person from the LDS church, and it's getting more and more confusing because they use more and more Christian terms, they just mean something different by them. So you'll say, well, I believe we're saved by grace. And they'll say, we believe that. You'll say, well, I believe it's by faith that we get grace. They'll say, faith, yes. Grace, yes. Works, yes. They combine all those, and all those things are needed to become a believer. That is not what Scripture says. Now, their Scripture, they have a hard time producing that saved by faith, but they do have a verse. It's in a second Nephi that I'll show you. And this is what they could come up with, 2523. This is not Scripture. This is in their, their writings that says, We know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And this really kind of describes their teaching or, or the way they're evolving. Is they're now saying, yeah, it's by grace. After we've done everything we can do, after we've done everything God wants us to do and tried our hardest and did what's expected of us, then if we come up short, we have God's grace. It's mostly us, but if we don't quite make it and if we've done everything we can do, then God will cover us. That is not the gospel. That is not what Christianity teaches, right? It's not us at all. It's all God. It's all grace that we simply access through faith. It's not by works. That's, that's what Ephesians 2 is trying to tell us. Where it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And of course that's not the only place that it says that. We see it in Titus 3, 5 says the same thing, not by works, he's saying. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Same thing he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And then another verse in Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see the theme here? We're saved by faith. That's what, that's what the Bible is teaching. There's many other verses. So, so how do we... How do we deal with this? How does this come to play when we're talking to somebody, a Mormon or any other false religion? Well, one major problem is continuing revelation. You see, if you believe that God's continually revealing himself all the time in specific ways, that means anyone at any time could come along and say, God gave me a vision and now I'm starting a new religion. And God told me to do it this way. We get people do that. The question is, how do we know that? Give us some proof. In Joseph Smith's case, it would be, let us see the plates. 
Let us see what you're doing. Why doesn't this make sense? Why did you copy Isaiah on and on, we could ask? Why were you arrested several times? As Christians, we know that God has given us his God-breathed word, the word of God, and that it does not change, and that the biblical canon God's specific revelation in writing was closed at the end of Revelation. All the apostles understood that. The early church understood that. And we understand that today. We don't have to worry about, oh, hey, God has told me this and think, this sounds completely contrary to the Bible. How do I know that? You don't need to know that. You just need to know, hey, it's not true. Nothing will be contrary to the Bible. That's what Jude was saying when he said, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So people couldn't say, hey, God told me to start a new religion. That's why we can't do that. So how do we, how do, we do this? Well, we're basically, as we're interacting with other people on our doorstep or anyone else, anywhere else or anyone else, we're trying to balance some verses here. We got 1 Peter 3.15 that I shared at the beginning that says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, Let it yet do it with gentleness and reverence. You know, so we're trying to do that. But then we're also trying to follow this advice in Scripture. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this is something contrary to the gospel, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. That's why my practice, I always talk on the porch. We don't want to do anything to encourage them or help them along or anything like that because they're spreading false doctrine. And then when we interact with them, we want to have grace. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Those are verses that Tim, some of those verses Tim shared last week. Same thing. We want to share the gospel with people. Not to earn our salvation. Not to get a building block where we can be closer to God. We want to share the gospel. Because it's, it's the beauty of God's creation. And we just want to point others to it and say, look at that. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, we thank you for the day and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your son. And Father, we pray that you would help us, those of us here who are believers... Lord, to share our faith with others, not not because it's somehow earning our salvation, because it's one of the most beautiful things that you've ever created. And we just want to share it with somebody else. Lord, help us to be effective in doing that. God, we pray that your truth would penetrate more and more people's hearts. Father, we pray that we as a church would be faithful to your word, knowing that we should never change anything, that would be totally wrong. 
Lord, help us to be faithful to you and your word. And Lord, we thank you for giving us a church like Grace that's that way right now. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be effective in sharing our faith with others, even people in false religions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. It looks like we're going to do Islam next Sunday. Hope to see you then. Have a great day. You're dismissed.